Well, it is my joy and privilege to welcome the brother who's going to be bringing the word to us today. We have Dr. Joe Rigney with us. Joe is the president of Bethlehem College and Seminary, where I went to seminary. I had Joe for a few classes as a professor, and he was still willing to come preach here, so that's good. And Joe is a jack of all trades, so he's, you know, being a president of a school isn't enough. He's also a pastor at Cities Church in Minnesota. And then in his spare time from that, he's also a teacher for Desiring God. And when he's, I guess, bored with that, he's also married and has three kids. And I'm sure he spends his other waking hours doing even more things. So Joe is one of those guys that knows a lot about everything. And every time he talks, he just has a way of explaining it that you think, that makes total sense, and yet I've never thought of it like that. And so I'm excited for him to bring the word to us this morning. Um, with that, would you just welcome Joe as he comes to bring God's word to us this morning? Well, it is a joy to be with you. Um, it's, always, it's always good. Now I've, uh, I've been the president of Bethlehem now for just a year. I was a professor for 12 years before that. And uh, it's always good to come and see our alumni and the churches that they are pastoring and to worship with you. It's a privilege for me to be here. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to Romans chapter 8. We're going to be reading from Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to 39. So hear the word of the Lord. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The heart of the gospel is that God is for you. That's about as simple and direct as you can say it. God is for you. He's he's for you. But a simple sentence like that requires some unpacking. So there's one living, sovereign. We just sang about this. This is just what we sang. There's one living, sovereign, all-glorious, triune God. He's infinite, eternal, unchanging, all-sufficient, most wise, most holy, most just, most merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He is the maker and sustainer of the world 
and the Lord and ruler of history. And, and this God, this one living, sovereign, all-glorious triune God is for you. He's on your side. He's in your corner. He's not indifferent to you or apathetic about you. He's not hostile to you nor opposed to you. His goodness and his mercy pursue you all the days of your life. The heart of the gospel is that God is for you. Now, few of us, I think, feel the wonder of this reality. Like we hear it, we confess it, we sing it, we want to boast and exult and glory in it, but if you're at all like me, your heart struggles to rise to meet the worth of that gospel. And one reason for that struggle to rise with our hearts is confusion. We don't, we don't see the glory of it clearly. And so my really modest goal this morning here at Chapelwood is to sow some seeds of clarity from Romans 8 about the heart of this gospel in hopes that the Holy Spirit will raise your affections higher. And more than that, I want to offer some clarity to you that may help you testify to the heart of the gospel to those around you. Like you seeing clearly may help you help others to see clearly. And then finally, I want us, if possible, to revel in what some call the greatest promise in the Bible. The greatest promise in the Bible. So, let's go to the passage. In it, we hear certain terms, right? Certain language of, of charges and justification and condemnation. And, and those sorts of words place us where? They place us in a courtroom. We're in a courtroom. And in this courtroom, there are at least three people. We have an accuser who is apparently bringing charges. There's the accused who is on trial. And there is a judge who is rendering a verdict and pronouncing a sentence. And so that's the setting, and that brings us perhaps to our first confusion. As Christians, we know that we're the accused and God is the judge. But the world around us is confused on precisely this point. Like for many people in our culture, the idea that we're the accused is a problem. They don't see themselves as the criminal in the courtroom. In fact, for many people, God, if he exists, is the one who needs to come down and answer some questions. C.S. Lewis, 75 years ago, noted that God, for many, is the one who is on trial. And this, Lewis said, created a new situation in the modern world, different from what happened in previous centuries. Here's what Lewis said. The early Christian preachers could assume in their hearers, whether they were Jews or pagans, a sense of guilt. And thus the Christian message in those days was one of unmistakably good news. It promised healing to those who knew they were sick. But on the other hand, for us, we have to convince our hearers of the unwelcome diagnosis before we can expect them to welcome the news of the remedy 
Or again, he goes on. The ancient man approached God, or even the pagan gods, as an accused person approaches the judge. And for the modern man, the roles are reversed. He is the judge. God is in the dock. Now, he's quite a kindly judge. If God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war and poverty and disease, then modern man is ready to listen to it. The trial may even end in God's acquittal. But the important thing in the modern world is that man is on the bench, God is in the dock. So I'm calling that, that's the world's confusion and why the good news doesn't sound as good as it is. Now, the Christian confusion is a little more subtle, so see if you resonate at all with this. So when we hear the language of courtroom, we know we're the accused, God is the judge. But what about the accuser, right? So in, that, in the passage, who will bring a charge, an accusation against God's elect? And so what do you think of when you hear the word accuser? Well, we think, I think, of the devil making accusations against us. In fact, the name Satan means accuser. And this, for us, maybe creates a little bit of confusion because Satan's the bad guy. He hates us. He's a malicious liar. He's a murderer. From the beginning, the name devil means slanderer. He's the accuser. He's the slanderer. And so here's the question. What's he doing in God's courtroom? And so our imaginations at this point might lead us astray. We, we maybe begin to imagine there's a courtroom where there's a prosecutor, this accuser, and he's evil, malicious. And he's uttering false accusations and slanders against us. He's lying about us. And then we might begin to imagine that that accuser is maybe being effective. His lies are working. His accusations are landing. His false charges are sticking, which means that judge is either blind or compromised. Like that judge is inept or he's on the side of the devil. And both of these errors, the world's confusion about who exactly is on trial and the Christian's confusion about the role of the devil in the courtroom hinder our ability to rejoice in the heart of the gospel. So in the first case with the world, the news, hey, God's on your side. He's declared you not guilty is met with, who's he think he is? Or even more, we don't really need him. He probably is not even real. He's just a fiction. He just makes you feel better. And if he, but if he is real, then I think he needs to answer some questions. He's got some explaining to do. In the other confusion, we may feel some relief. Oh, good, God's for us, and he's rescued us from those false accusations that the devil was bringing. But there also may be a little twinge in the back of our mind. God, why are you allowing that liar in your courtroom at all? Now, here's the thing. In both cases, our chief difficulty concerns the reality and the gravity of sin. In that essay I quoted earlier from Lewis, he said that the greatest barrier he faced in his evangelistic efforts is this. The almost total absence from the minds of my audience of any sense of sin. It's the greatest barrier. He said, when I'm going to preach, the thing that I run into is the people I'm talking to don't think they have sin. They don't think they're guilty. Apart from that sense of sin, the gospel just doesn't make sense. 
And that's why a crucial part of the church's witness in the modern world is the reality of God's holiness and Jesus' demands for the world. Dwight Moody is reported to have said, you've got to get people lost before you can get them saved. And this is difficult. A lot of reasons it's difficult. Let me give you just a couple. First, modern culture rejects the idea of the moral and natural law of God. Lewis called this, he used the word the Tao. He used that term the Tao because he thought it, it, it was, he meant by it the rational and moral and objective order of the universe that God built into creation. And he called it the Tao because he wanted to communicate this isn't just a Christian thing, it's not just a Jewish thing or a biblical thing, it's a universal thing. All cultures everywhere up until the modern one recognized the world is a certain way and we have to conform ourselves to it. He said uh, the doctrine of objective value is what he meant. The belief that certain attitudes, certain heart responses are really true and certain attitudes are really false to the kind of thing the universe is and the kind of things that we are. That, that objective value, that we ought to value things according to their value, and if we don't, we're wrong. That truth, he said, was common to all teachers, even all men. Jewish, Christian, Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist, all, pagan, whatever you want to say, whatever the differences, and there are some big differences between those groups, the common thread in all of those world religions, ancient religions, was the belief in objective reality that we needed to conform ourselves to, okay? Now, modern people, on the other hand, think of reality as Plato. It can be manipulated according to our wishes and desire. It's not fixed and objective. It's something that we mold to shape what we want, There's no law that binds all of us, no lawgiver that stands over us. We are free to take reality, whether it's our own bodies, whether it's other people, and mold them and shape them according to my wants. And no one can tell me I'm wrong. And so for Lewis, the difference between ancient pagans and modern unbelievers is that ancient pagans at least had a self-conscious sense of guilt and sin. That's, that's why they were sacrificing to their gods all the time. That's why they were doing all of those rituals. Modern people, on the other hand, kind of have a subconscious sense of guilt. Like, it's still there, but they've suppressed it, and it often comes out sideways. And so you look around the modern world, and you see people are still trying to justify themselves and purify themselves and show their innocence and their holiness, but they do it through social media signaling or through political action, or through bodily transformation. So we are a guilt-ridden people who no longer believe in objective standards, and therefore it's really confusing. And therefore when you come and you say, good news, they don't get it. It doesn't make sense. And that's why, just a little parenthesis here, that's why um, there are some Christians who celebrate the demise of what sometimes is called Bible Belt religion or cultural Christianity. Like they think, it's good, that's going away. And, and they, lo- they welcome the loss of a Christian culture in Europe and America because they thought, they think it was a hindrance to the gospel. Because it lulled people into a false sense of security. It, it covered over evil. It, it was a stumbling block to unbelievers. And, and there may be some truth in those criticisms of cultural Christianity. 
And cultural Christianity never saved anybody. It never saved a single person. And if it did cover over sin because it baptized certain evils, then God hated it and we ought to condemn it. But cultural Christianity at least testified to the reality of God's moral order. It reminded people of that there is a standard, that there is a reality outside of themselves to which they must conform, and if they don't conform, they're wrong, and therefore it's kind of like a a pre-evangelism, like it's kind of tilling the soil a little bit. It tills the soil to prepare it for seed. It teaches us, and it taught through laws and customs and cultural practices, the reality of God's moral order. And so even though it never saved anybody, it did give many people a sense of guilt and of sin which prepared them for the good news when it arrived. And that brings me to the second difficulty as we try to preach this gospel in the modern world. Like many of us want our friends and our family and our neighbors to know Jesus. I have people that I really want to know Jesus. And I don't want them to, and I don't mind if they stumble over Jesus, right? If they just can't get to Jesus, that's okay. But I don't want them to stumble over other things. Like, if they stumble over Jesus, that's okay. But let's try to get rid of all other stumbling blocks. The problem is, you can't separate Jesus from his commands. Including the commands that he established in the creation of the world, the moral law that he built into it. Like, you, you can't water down or mute the voice of God in his word or in his world, in our conscience. And it is so tempting to do this, right? Just ask yourself this, right? How how tempting is it to present Jesus to people as the fulfillment of all of their desires and aspirations, as the source of comfort and happiness, without ever pressing upon them the reality of God's law and their sin? Isn't that so easy? Do you find yourself doing that? How easy it is to turn Jesus into one more malleable part of reality, one more piece of Play-Doh that you can shape in your own image. How easy it is, is it to remake God in our image rather than face the fact that we've dishonored him as the one whose image we bear. And so in the face of those two difficulties the loss of a sense of sin, of the moral law, and then the temptation to please people by muting the demands of Jesus in the face of those, what should we do? And I think what we should do is this. We ought to labor to creatively and clearly and courageously press the law of God on the consciences of men. Remember Nathan with King David? You remember how he creatively made up a story to awaken David's sense of moral outrage and then just as David's sense of moral outrage rose up, this is wrong, he turned that mirror around and said, you're the man. Remember that? That's what we have to do. We must work with God's help to awaken that moral sense in our friends and families and then to lovingly and clearly say, you too, you're the man. And we do it in hope that they feel their lostness and therefore are able by God's grace 
to see and savor the heart of the gospel. And of course, this begins with us, and it brings us back to that subtle confusion I mentioned about the courtroom. Here's, here's the thing about the courtroom for Christians. You must not think that the accuser in God's courtroom is a liar. Because the reality is, he doesn't need to lie. So for a moment, just, just for, this is a hypothetical situation here. For a moment, instead of the devil as the accuser, just imagine for a second the holiest of God's angels. He's the prosecutor. And he comes into the courtroom, and you're sitting there in the dock, and he stands before the righteous judge, and he turns to Romans chapter 1. And he points at each of us, and he says this, you've not honored God as God. You've not given thanks to him for all of his many kindnesses to him. You've not treasured him or delighted in him supremely. In fact, you've exchanged his glory for idols. You've exchanged his truth for a lie, and you've worshiped and served creatures, especially yourself, and not the creator who's blessed forever. You've followed the lusts of your heart. You've debased your mind. You've despised the masculinity of men, and you've despised the femininity of women. And you've indulged every sort of dishonorable passion. You've been filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. You're full of envy. You're full of murder. You're full of strife, deceit, maliciousness. You're gossips. You're slanderers. You're haters of God. You're insolent. You're haughty. You're boastful. You invent evil. You're disobedient to your parents. You're foolish. You're faithless. You're heartless. You're ruthless. ruthless. You know what God has said. It's written on your heart. And yet you have suppressed that truth, celebrated ungodliness and unrighteousness in yourself and others. You are the man. Now, that's the reality of the situation. Now imagine sitting there, knowing that every word of that is true. And every ungodly thought, every careless word, every sinful desire, and every unrighteous deed is laid bare with damning evidence. They're just playing the tapes. And then imagine that that righteous judge, infinitely holy and unimpeachably good, looks at you and says, not guilty. No condemnation. Righteous justified. More than that, imagine that he looks at you and says, hey, I just need you to know right there, I know it's hard. I know it's heavy right now. I'm 100% for you. Like I am on your side. I am in your corner. I've got your back. My goodness is yours forever. Like that, that moment then cries out for a little more explanation. It's like, I need, what just happened? And that's what Paul gives us in Romans 8.33. He says, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. There it is. Not guilty, okay? Well, who's to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. That series of questions and answers contains a deeply profound argument. Like It's like this. If the Supreme Court of the universe has ruled in your favor... What charges could possibly stick? 
Who could possibly bring a charge against you if the supreme and righteous judge has already rendered his verdict? God is the justifier. Who's the condemner? And then Paul then points to the foundation of God's justification. He reaches back to his earlier argument from Romans 3. I'm going to quote Romans 3 here. You don't have to turn there. Just listen. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's you sitting there with the angel going, hey, it's all true. And are justified by his grace as a gift. How? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. What did he do? Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he'd passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he could be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So God justifies the ungodly, the guilty, as a gift, as grace, because what Jesus has done. He pays the debt. He satisfies the judgment through his death on the cross. We receive it by faith, and God is able, therefore, to be both truly righteous and the justifier of the sinner who trusts in his son. In other words, the reason that you, a guilty sinner, condemned for your rebellion against God and the objective moral order he embedded in the universe can be declared righteous is because Jesus died for you. He was raised for you. He ascended to heaven and sits at God's right hand for you and even now is making intercession for you. In other words, this is what you have to get. There is a fourth person in this courtroom. Not only is there a judge and an accuser and you, the accused, there's an advocate. Apostle John says, 1 John 2, 1, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. That's the unpacking of the heart of the gospel. The righteous judge justifies you. He counts you righteous. By grace through faith, you are united to Jesus Christ, the righteous, who died, was raised, ascended to God's right hand, and ever lives to plead for you. And don't miss that intercession piece. Like in the book of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews just belabors this point a little bit so you don't miss the importance of the intercession of Jesus. It says Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant than the old covenant because unlike those Levitical priests, he holds his priesthood permanently. Okay, so Levitical priests died, and that was it. Jesus died and was raised. And so he continues forever, seated at God's right hand, and as a result, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him because he always lives to make intercession for them. He never takes a break. He, never, he doesn't have a day off. He never stops. He never steps back and says, you know what, I'm good for now. Enough intercessing. He always lives to intercede. So, and now, if that was all, that would be pretty amazing, but there's more. In fact, one of the most remarkable things about this passage, and it's connected to something else Paul does earlier in Romans chapter 5, is the repetition of certain phrases, the, the more phrases. So in Romans 5, you remember this passage, um, where we have peace with God, having been justified with, by faith, we have peace with God, we've obtained access 
into the grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of glory. And then Paul says, not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings. Because while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And since we've been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by his by him from God's wrath, and, and since we were reconciled while we were enemies through his death, much more will we be saved by his life. And more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus. You hear that? But not only that, it's much more, much more, much more. That thing. Okay, same thing's happening here. Do you see it in Romans 8? He died. More than that, he was raised. More than that, he's ascended and sits at God's right hand. More than that. He intercedes for us. And this is so crucial. In fact, if there's one thing that you take away from this sermon, it's this. God, the God who is for us, the God who meets us in the person of Jesus is the God of more than that. He's the God of, but wait, there's more. There's always more. And, and not just in terms of this courtroom, but in terms of the good he intends for us. So notice here now the shift that happens in Romans 8. Look back there. We've been in a courtroom, accusations, justifications, condemnations, all the way up through 835, and then all of a sudden it shifts, we get a new question. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So now we're not mainly dealing in a courtroom, now we're dealing with love. And then notice how Paul presents these obstacles that could conceivably separate us from Christ's love. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. You see the difference here, how the shift? Like in the courtroom, the questions in the courtroom had to do with sin and guilt and moral evil, right? Like that's one sort of barrier to God's being for you is sin sort of stuff, right? This question has to do with suffering and hardship and natural evil. Different, a little bit different. You see the difference? Moral evil, natural evil. Evil that you do versus evil that happens to you, like suffering and affliction. And Paul's argument here, as he unpacks the heart of the gospel, is that the work of Christ completely removes the first and fundamentally transforms the second. Death, resurrection, ascension, and advocacy of Jesus removes every bit of sin and guilt. It's gone. It's just gone. No condemnation. Real justification. No higher appeal. But more than that, the work of Jesus transforms the suffering that we endure on his behalf. And that last part is important. Notice verse 36. For your sake, God's sake, we are being killed and treated like sheep to be slaughtered. These sufferings are for the sake of Jesus. But I want you to notice something really important about these sufferings. He doesn't merely mean, he doesn't limit himself to persecution. Okay, it's in there, that's in the list. But he also includes a bunch of other stuff that's not persecution, but is still for Jesus' sake, right? Distress, just distress, I'm, I'm distressed. Uh, famine, nakedness. Danger, even those sufferings are for Jesus' sake. And so how does that work? Well, how does the work of Jesus transform suffering? And we see in the work of, that the work of Jesus makes these hardships work for our good. That's what Paul says in Romans 8, 28. Look back up. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, including 
Tribulation, distress, persecution, and the rest. Or, to put it the way Paul does, the work of Jesus makes us more than conquerors in all these things. Not apart from them, in them. What does that mean? What does more than conquer mean? Just pause. Okay. When you conquer something, it means that you overcome it. Okay? You don't let the thing hinder you from accomplishing your goal. That's what conquer means. I have a goal. This thing gets in the way. If I conquer or overcome it, it means I don't let that barrier keep me from getting to my goal. Does that make sense? So to conquer tribulation and distress and famine would mean I'm not going to let those things prevent me from reaching my destination. A conqueror then is someone who endures and makes it. So what does more than a conqueror mean? This is a step beyond, right? This is more than. Well, more than a conqueror recognizes not only are these sufferings to be endured, but they are themselves the way I get more of God. A conqueror endures suffering. He just guts it out. A more than a conqueror rejoices in suffering because suffering is doing things in our souls to give us more of God. He knows. He's persuaded. He is sure nothing can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Not life, not death, not angels, rulers, things present, things to come, powers, nothing in the whole world, above, world below, nothing in all of creation can separate me from the love of God in Christ, which brings me back to the greatest promise in the Bible. I skipped this verse so I could end with it. Romans 8, 32. I said that the heart of the gospel is that God is for us, and therefore no one and nothing can be successfully against us. Not now, not ever. And then Paul gives this argument so that you can really be persuaded that that's true. And this is an argument from the greater to the lesser. Okay, that's how the argument works. In other words, listen to it. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So follow the argument. It's an argument. It's reason to believe. If God did not withhold his son from death for you, what will he not do for you? Like, it's built, the argument's built on the infinite worth and value of Jesus and the Father's eternal and infinite love for his Son. And so it's like, given that Jesus is that valuable and given that God loves him that much and given that he gave him on the cross for you, there's no way he's going to hold anything back from you. If he's given you the best, what else won't he give you? No good thing will he withhold from you. He'll give you everything. And amazingly, he'll give you everything with him. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Don't miss that. God, didn't, God gave up his son, but he didn't lose his son. He didn't spare him, but he also received him back in the resurrection, which means all the good that God intends to give you, he intends to give you with Jesus. He will always be the God of more than that, and there will always be 
This is the heart of the gospel. God shows his love for us that while we were sinners, real sinners, he died for us. And nothing, not the true accusations of angels or the false accusations of devils, not the hostility of persecutors, nor the tribulations of life, including the death of two-year-olds by drowning, not distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, not life nor death, not present things or future things, anything else, nothing, nothing, nothing can separate you from his love. Let's pray. Father, I pray that that simple truth that you are for us would be an unfathomable ballast in our boats as we face the trials and the hardships of life. I pray it would stabilize us when the accusations fly in our minds, when we're tempted to despair because of the devil's accusations. I pray that the truth, God is for me because of what Jesus has done, would put to silence all of those accusations. I pray it would be a ballast when the unthinkable, unimaginable, when the horror and the tragedy just lands out of nowhere. I pray that the truth, God's for me and all things work for my good because of what Jesus has done for me, would stabilize and steady us and give us deep tears, real tears, but unfathomable joy. And so work that in me, work that in the people here of Chapelwood Baptist Church. In Jesus' name that we pray, amen.